Hello and welcome to episode 56 of The Witcher chapter by chapter book review where I will go through a summary of the latest chapter while giving my detailed thoughts on it. Today is a discussion about chapter 10 from The Lady of the Lake. Well, if you are somebody who listens to this on YouTube, you might notice something different about this episode. <laughs> uh, I'm not in it. My face isn't in it. We're not doing a, a face reveal for this episode. Um, so there, I put a nice little image on the screen for you, though. Um, I hope that you like the image. This is a piece of art by Dennis Gordiev, I think that's how you say his name. Um, he's got, a, if you actually just Google Dennis Gordiev Witcher illustrations, you'll see there's a lot of illustrations very similar to this one uh, depicting different scenes and moments throughout the entire book series. And I actually really love them. I've looked at all of them. Um, they're the characters aren't really that pretty in them, in my opinion, um, but that's okay because uh, who cares about that? Uh, it just he does he does a really good job of depicting what's going on very accurately. So it's a nice way to get a better visual of what's going on in a scene for whatever scene he made the illustration for. Uh, if you're like me and your imagination isn't that great. I, I sometimes I have a hard time um, picturing things. Like I can understand what's going on, but it just coming up the visual in my head, it's not always easy. And I'm sure I'm not alone in that. I'm sure there are others out there like me who <laughs> struggle in that capacity. So if you are, uh, go check out Dennis's artwork if you haven't already. Um, but yeah, this one is a, a scene from this chapter. So. Uh, that's why I chose that. I believe this is the only um, scene that he has illustrated in this entire chapter. So, uh, but it's also one of the really good, really interesting scenes. Uh, but anyway, uh, moving on. Uh, speaking of doing things a little bit differently, I don't know if you'll even notice this, to be honest, but I am going to be going through the chapter in a way that's different than how I've normally done it. Normally, I read the chapter a lot and then I'll read it one final time and I'll take notes. I'll basically jot down um, like just talking points, you know, talking points from throughout the chapter so that I can make sure I'm going through everything. I'm not forgetting anything, but I didn't do that this week. I didn't do that with this chapter. Instead, I decided to go through with a highlighter and highlight some important things um, basically what I would probably put into my notes, but it, it saved me a little bit of time, time that I, I needed saving. Um, I, I don't think you'll really notice the difference that much. Uh, I have my little sections of each episode, like my recap, the summary, and then the detailed notes on what happened throughout the chapter. And then my, my closing thoughts, my, uh, my looking ahead. I'm not going to do that this week. I'm going to just go through the chat. I've got the book. Listen, I've got the book in my hand. I've never done this before in one of these episodes. So you'll hear the turning of pages, uh, but that, it, it should go about the same as it normally does. But let's, let's get started uh, talking about chapter 10 from Lady of the Lake. So 
We begin this chapter, we see, we are visiting Boris. I said his name is Boreas in the last chapter, but I think it's actually just supposed to be said like Boris, but who knows? There's so many names I cannot pronounce. Uh, but Boris Munn, he was in the previous chapter. He was in uh, the Tower of the Swallow. He, he's been around a little bit. He's a very minor character. He was part of Stefan Skellen's crew and he was this really expert tracker. He was the guy that was able to help, uh, along with Vilgefortz, was able to help um, Skellen, Boneheart, Ryans get to find Siri at the lake by the Tower of the Swallow. Uh, so yeah, he's this really expert tracker. He abandoned Skellen at Stiga Castle last chapter, and now he's in the middle of traveling. It's nighttime. He's kind of camped out. He's roasting this animal over a fire, and this man, this humongous man, uh, comes up, and he's being really sneaky, but Boris Mann, being this expert tracker, know, knows that the man's there. The man's being very quiet. He's not really making a lot of noise. He's not easy to detect. A normal person wouldn't have been able to detect this man, but Boris Munn is not a normal person in this regard. So he's able to detect them. And he says, you, you can come on out. I know you're there and don't even try to mess with me because I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend the little bit of possessions I have to the death. And the, the man's like, well, I'm, I'm not going to steal anything from you. I'm just a pilgrim. And then he, Boris says to him, okay, well, let the other man come out too. And then the pilgrim goes, wait, what are you talking about? There's no other man. And then an elf comes out. Um, and the elf is even more sneaky than the pilgrim because elves are very light footed. Um, they are really good at moving around without being noticed. And it's even said that it's no disgrace to be sneaked up on by an elf. Well, None of them mean Boris harm. Boris means none of them harm. He invites them to sit down and they start talking. He shares his food with them. The elf points out that the food was a skrek, which is some form of very large rodent, um, but they're okay with eating the rodent because they're out in the wilderness. This wasn't some rodent that was living in the cities, picking up who knows what kind of diseases. But they start talking a little bit. It's a little quiet at first. They don't really say too much. Uh, but we find out that they're in this place called the El Elskerdeg Pass. Um, and it's a really cruel area. It's an area known for for um, like cults that are known for their cruelty. It doesn't have a good reputation. There's a lot of bad things that go on here. Um, they noticed at one point uh, the pilgrim and the elf noticed that there was a woman who was being roasted over a fire a night or a couple of nights back. So that's pretty, uh, that's pretty messed up. So they're not in a safe area, but the three of them, they're all, um, they're, they're not going to harm each other. So, uh, they start talking about this thing called the peace of Sintra. And that's a big part of this chapter. That's what most of this chapter is based around is the peace of Sintra. So they start talking about that and how they ventured out following the peace of Sintra. And, um, you know, I'm not going to play coy here. I'll just tell you, um, because it's pretty obvious by the end of the chapter at the beginning, there's some obvious hints, but it's not made 100% obvious. Um, it's never outright said that this is who they are, but, um, I'll just tell you right from the beginning instead of trying to dance around it. But the pilgrim is Dijkstra. 
So Dijkstra is no longer working as the head spy for Redania. And the elf is Isengrimfoil Tiarna, who we don't know as well as we know Dijkstra, but we have met him a couple of times. He was actually present a couple chapters back at the Battle of Brenna. He was one of the commanders, one of the officers in the Vryhead Brigade fighting for Nilfgaard, of course. So they bring up the piece of Sintra. They talk about it just a little bit. And they say that the kings arrived in Sintra in April so that they could get these peace negotiations with Nilfgaard started and these peace negotiations and all these political things figured out amongst themselves and amongst Nilfgaard. So the chapter cuts to, and I will warn you, this this is one of those chapters that cuts back and forth from scene to scene, from character to character, a lot. So you're going to hear me saying a lot of times that um, we're cutting to another scene, to another setting. We're we're bouncing from one place to another. There's going to be a lot of bouncing in this chapter, in this episode. There's going to be a lot of cutting. That doesn't sound good. Jesus. No, we'll go with bouncing. That's, that's a better way to describe it than cutting. Anyway, so... The scene, the next scene is in Sintra and it's in the throne room and all the rulers have arrived there. So we we first just see or get to witness what some of the thoughts are of the rulers. Uh, they're, you know, they're having their thoughts about um, the, like the, the current situation and like what they're taking a look at. There's like this heraldry of the um, past reigning monarchs of Sintra on the wall. And then there's these new ones from these families of Nilfgaard that helped in the capture of Sintra. And then there, um, there's this guy, his name is Cyrus Engelkind Hemelfart. It's quite an unfortunate name, but he's the hierarch of Novigrad, of the free city of Novigrad. And he is there as the chairman of the meeting. And we've also got, of course, Queen Meave, King Foltest, uh, there's King Venslav of Brugge, there's King Demavend, Henselt, um, Ethane, King Ethane of Sidaris, uh, King Kistrin of Verdun, who um, replaced his father, his name was um, Ervil, and he, he was actually supposed to marry Ciri once upon a time. She's the boy that he ran away from. She didn't want to marry him when she was uh, going to go meet him. And she ran away and then stumbled into Broccolon Forest and met Geralt for the first time. Um, and then there's also Duke Nidert. He's the head of the Rudanian Regency Council. And along with Duke Nidert representing Rudania, we have Dijkstra. So of course, this is uh, back in time from where Boris, Dijkstra, and Isengrim are, um, that's supposed to be present day. This, this um, meeting in Sintra is in the past from where Boris and the other two are. So the all of these members are present, but we also have Schillard Fitzosterlin. We met him a couple of times. He's the Nilfgaardian envoy. He's very relied upon by Emir for negotiations with the Northern Kingdoms. Uh, so not a lot happens in this one scene, but we cut again to, we're still in Sintra and it's still the present moment, but we're in a different room. We are actually just one room above the current room and the lodge is there. 
So we've got all of our lodge members and they're having their different thoughts and it's explaining what they're dressed up in. And, um, Tris is sitting there thinking about how the room that they're in is the converse is where the conversation between Calanthe, Geralt, Pavetta and Dooney took place. And, uh, when, um, Pavetta was just, uh, barely pregnant with Siri and she starts thinking about Siri because of that. And she thinks about how Siri is far away, but she's with Geralt and Yennefer and she's safe. So she's happy to, to know that Siri's safe, but she also thinks, unless they've lied to me again. So there's some mistrust between Triss and the Lodge, Triss and probably Philippa, which there should be. She should be mistrustful of them because uh, they're not looking out for Triss's best interest, which isn't what their goal is, of course. Their goal isn't to serve Triss, but they'll do whatever it takes to achieve their goals, even if that means doing something that would harm Triss, whether it's something that would be very harmful or just a little bit. Um, so she, yeah, she's right to be skeptical here. Uh, so one of the members, as you know, is Fringilla Vigo. She is there. She's looking extremely dejected and sad. And it's said that she's uh, really pale with a truly deathly, morbid, utterly ghastly paleness. So they paint a very descriptive picture of how Fringilla is looking so that we can understand that she's having a hard time after the humiliation that she experienced with the lodge and after the uh, humiliation that she experienced because of Geralt, this man that she was, uh, I don't know if you could say she was in love with him. And I think I've talked about this before, so I won't beat a dead horse, but um, at least very strongly infatuated with, uh, you know, she didn't, she, she did him dirty um, as he did her. But uh, I, I do believe that there was a strong infatuation at least from her to him. I don't know about so much from him to her. I don't think so. But anyway, she's still not having a good time. Well, there's this three-dimensional telecommunicator in the table and every member of the lodge is sitting around the table and through this telecommunicator, they're able to see and hear the meeting that's going on below them with the different rulers. And, um, Philippa says that they're going to be watching over so that the boys don't go too wild because they are, they don't, they don't want them making decisions that they don't approve of. Uh, but then we go back to the setting in Elsker Dag with Boreas, I, I said it again, Boreas, uh, Boris, Dijkstra and Isengrim for Tiarna. And they are talking about the negotiations and Dijkstra points out that these kings were all at war and since they stopped trying to kill each other and that they're uh, now sitting down and talking about negotiations, that means that they don't have power anymore. And as a result, they're not killing. There's no more burning down of buildings and villages. They're not killing kids that women aren't being forced on, forced upon. Um, so it's a good thing. We should, you know, this is something that uh, people should be happy about. And uh, Fourth Tiarna points out that, well, politics is also a war. And he's really not wrong about that. And we're going to see in a little bit how he was really impacted by these peace negotiations in a very negative way. 
But yeah, he's he's right that politics is also a war, and that's demonstrated in other ways, not just from what happens with Fortiarna, but what happens um, with some other people. But we'll we'll get into that soon. But for now, we're going to go back to the meeting at Sintra with the rulers. And when we get back there, King Hensel's throwing an outright hissy fit. He is pissed. They're trying to get him to give up the lands that he took from Edern, or that were basically kind of given to him from Nilfgaard when Nilfgaard um, completely conquered Edern. So he doesn't want to do that. He really does not want to do that. He says he doesn't even want to give up a span of land. And the other rulers are trying to tell him, not even Demo, not even just Demoven, but before Demoven even says anything, the other rulers are, are like, okay, now, now, Hansel, calm down. Let's, you know, let's be mature adults here. And he's still throwing his hissy fit until eventually um, Demoven does chime in, does try to defend uh, his goals here, his mission to get a lot of his land back from Kedwin. And um, one of the arguments that Hensel uses is that um, his soldiers, they were liberators and they were welcomed with flowers and love and... Demoven says, no, 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 no. Your bandits, they invaded and they murdered. They forced themselves upon people. They stole, they robbed, they looted. Um, so no, like we, we aren't going to reward that kind of behavior um, by letting you keep it now that the war's over. And it's it's just such an interest. Like, it's kind of complicated because... And I, it was said, oh, this was a while back, it was in time of contempt, but it was said that um, some of the, I don't know if it was all of the territory that um, was given to Kedwin from Edern, uh, it used to belong to Kedwin a long time ago. Uh, I don't know if it was all of it though, but at least some of it. So that makes it a little bit, a little bit complicated, but um, also Hensel using the argument that they peacefully took the lands that they did uh it's probably bullshit um when demoven says that they were murdering and stealing and i can't use that word forcing themselves you know the word i can't use it youtube doesn't like it but um the r word um back when we first learned about kedwin receiving these lands from Nilfgaard, these Adernian lands, uh, one of the soldiers, they were ordered, you know, go to, we're going to march up to Dolbothana. Uh, we're not going to engage Nilfgaard. We're just going to show them our colors. Uh, and then the one soldier who was um, talking to his subordinates about what they were going to do, he's like, he's telling them, okay, don't kill anyone. Don't steal. Don't loot. Um, and then he was about to say, don't, don't force yourself on any women. And then he stopped himself and he said, if you do need to force yourself on any women, just do it, do, do it so that nobody finds out, like do it on the quiet. So I'm inclined to believe that, yeah, they were messing things up. They were uh, being very aggressive and um, committing crimes in the process of taking over. Either way, it's still, um, it's a complicated issue because Hensel is, 
refusing to give this up, but um, it doesn't seem like it's going to be that much of a problem, um, but I'll talk about that in just a second. But first, um, Demiven likes to talk about how, or he likes to talk about, Demiven goes on to talk about how for um, good and for peace, um, he will recognize the autonomy of Dolblathana. Um, they're no longer going to be a kingdom. He's not going to accept that, but they will be a duchy. So that's going to happen, but that's the only concession that he's willing to make. And he doesn't want that to be set as a precedent. That's the only thing he wants Kedwin and the, um, and the army out within 10 days. Hensel screams never. He gets up and he starts jumping around like a monkey. He's just, he's not happy about this. Uh, but then we cut back to the lodge upstairs. They're witnessing what's going on here. And Sabrina Glevisig, who we know has been an advisor to Hensel, she's like, no, he's an idiot. We're, don't worry. I will get this taken care of. Like the Edern will receive those lands again. And it, the conversation is not revisited later, but I think it, we can assume that she definitely was able to make that happen. We know that the lodge and all the sorceresses, even individually, have a lot of influence, especially the ones who advise uh, rulers. So I think we can believe that um, Hensel eventually does concede and give gives those lands back to Edern. But they're talking still, and they bring up Dolblathana because just just because the rulers talked about it doesn't mean it's settled. Because the lodge has to have their say, of course. And they say that, um, yeah, we got to figure out exactly what we're going to permit the rulers to do. And they ask Francesca, hey, like, this is your kingdom. Like, what, what's going on? And then um, she says that she's going to agree to Demiven's offer. She's not going to be a queen anymore. Um, she says that she's going to agree to the reimmigration of human settlers and their estates. She is going to agree to equality for all races. So Dolblathana is no longer going to be a place for only elves, uh, humans, dwarves, gnomes, whatever. They can all go back um, to Dolblathana or go there for the first time if they've never been there before. But whatever, they can go there. Um, she says, though, because Philippa tells her, you shouldn't agree to everything. Like, there are some, like, you got to put your foot down somewhere. And Francesca says, oh, no, I will. Um, I'm not going to agree to leave homage, though. I am going to want Dolblathana as a freehold. I don't want any vassal duties. I just want to give him an oath of loyalty. And they say, well, I don't think he's going to agree to that. And we also got to figure out uh, all these things like familial inheritance and uh, this and that. And Francesca points out, well, that's not really that necessary to figure out right now because, I mean, even though I can't have babies, I, I'm, I, it's going to be a while. I'm a sorceress one. Uh, sorceresses live a long time, as we know. And also, I'm an elf, so I live a long freaking time. And we'll resolve that issue of inheritance with Demiven's grandchildren, not with Demiven himself. So they're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. But what about the squirrels? What about the Scoia'tael commando units? And this is where Francesca, she gets quiet. She gets, you you can tell that she's already, like, you don't know exactly what just yet she's agreed to, but you just know from her total change in demeanor that she's agreed to something that's not really cool. And then she says, 
in war, um, war demands casualties. Peace does as well. So we find out from this next scene, uh, part of what that means, part of what's going on, we get an example of that. So we go to this place where there's this Nilf guardian, he's some kind of higher up, and he is letting these Scoyatel Vryhead Brigade commanders, officers know uh, what their fate is. Basically, he's telling them that they are going to be handed over to the Northerners as um, criminals. So they are going to be imprisoned in the North, um, which is what came out of this the agreements, the peace agreements in Sintra. They said that as conditions of the peace treaty um, being concluded, uh, the empire the empire has a duty to turn over the criminals to the nordlings so anybody that's been proven of uh, charges of terrorism murdering civilians um killing or torturing and or torturing of captives uh massacring the wounded in field hospitals we know that they were doing that that we saw that firsthand a couple chapters back it was a pretty horrible scene um, but anybody who's done things like that are going to be handed over to the nordlings and it's another, it's even more complicated than the whole Kedwin Edder thing. It's, it's complicated because, yeah, the, the, we do know that they were doing these things and they don't even deny it. Like these elves that are listening to this news, they're downright outraged. They're saying like, we did this for you. We were working for you, Nilfgaard, and you're just gonna hand us over as criminals? Like we killed on your orders. Um, and it's, it's just, the thing is, it's like, yeah, they did commit war crimes, but at the same time, Nilfgaard is handing over just the elves. They're not handing over humans who committed any war crimes. It's They're specifically targeting elves, and that's where it gets really messed up. Um, and that's just what had to be agreed on, and Nilfgaard's willing to hand over a lot of these kind of ridiculous demands to the Northerners. Um, and we're going to find out why in a little bit. But Foil Tiarna is actually present when they're receiving this news, and he's the first one to take this silver lightning bolt. It's the little, um, sig um, what's the word, the emblem? Um, I forget what the word is, but the the um, the little symbol that represents the Vryhead Brigade. He um, takes it off of his sleeve, and he throws it on the ground, and then all the other officers do that too. And then the the guy who's letting them know that they're going to be uh, handed over as criminals, he says, "Oh, I wouldn't really get rid of uh, of the, uh, the the imperial insignia. That's what he calls it, insignia. I wouldn't be so quick to get rid of that if I were you, uh, because as imperial officers, uh, you were guaranteed fair trials, lenient sentences, and a swift amnesty." And um, they don't really buy that. They kind of they all laugh at that. Um, and he also lets them know that they're only handing the officers over to the Nordlings. They're not handing over any of the soldiers that they commanded. So there is that. Well, the next scene. This will kind of explain why Nilfgaard is making concessions. Um, there's even more concessions than the one that we just went over, but um, this is going to explain why. So 
Schillard Fitzosterlin is meeting with Berengar Louvarden. And Louvarden is somebody that we very briefly met in this book, back earlier in the book. He was one of the people who was part of the conspiracy with Stefan Skellen to uh, start a revolution against Nilfgaard, to overthrow the Nilfgaardian Empire. And now we see that he was a double agent. He was spying on Skellen. He wasn't really a part of that. Um, so he was um, part of the conversation that Geralt overheard. Um, so the conversation that was that um, informed Geralt where Vilgefortz's hideout was, um, that Yennefer wasn't really um, uh, working with Vilgefortz, that she's actually a prisoner. So he heard those things. Um, he heard them talking about how King Vizimir of Redania uh, was assassinated by this half-elf who was protected by magic. So um, that's Baron Garluvard, and he was one of those members present in that meeting. So Fitzosterlin is uh, very confused and a bit outraged after hearing from Louvarden that the emperor is giving him this order to accept the northerners' um, demands about the repatriation of settlers. So they moved these um, Nilfgaardians into like the, some of the captured places like Broga and Verdun, and uh, they're going to be forced out now, and uh, Lyria as well. So Broga, Verdun, Lyria, like they're just going to be forced to leave these um, Nilfgaardian settlers that moved there. Um, and he's basically just saying, yep, that's what's going on. And the reason you don't understand it is because you think, like a lot of other people do, that victory is based on... Uh, killing and genocide and um, just thinking that you captured something. But in my opinion, says Louvarden, in my opinion, victory is when um, you are the one that is uh, having the losers buy all of your goods. <laughs> and it doesn't really seem to make that much sense at first, but he explains. So he says that um, really... No, Nilfgaard didn't really lose this war. The Northerners pretty much lost. And he says, it wasn't without reason that we destroyed their agriculture and ruined their industry. And we rem it, it, it was something that was pointed out a while back, like when the war first started, that they were ordered to, that the Nilfgaardian soldiers were ordered to like burn villages, burn crops, fields, anything... Um, that you could find, burn it, kill people. Uh, so this very destructive war that they committed against the Northerners um, was deliberate because they want the Northerners, I guess whether Nilfgaard won the war or lost the war, they want them to rely on Nilfgaardian goods so they could make money off of them. And they are going to have to do that now because they can't produce their own goods, or at least not at the volume that they used to be able to before Nilfgaard came in and destroyed everything. And the, the reason that he says they want to concede to a lot of the Northerners' demands in these peace negotiations is because 
they don't want them to like if, if they don't if if Nilfgaard were not to concede if they were not to agree to a lot of things they don't want um the northerners to impose these strict trade laws these embargoes or customs duties they want their merchants to be able to get into the northern kingdoms and sell all of these things and not just to make money but because they've been having their manufactories working at full till and they're going to have this um, crisis of overproduction if it doesn't work out that way so yeah uh they are very crafty the nilf guardians <laughs> they're definitely not stupid you can say a lot of bad things about Nilfgaard and the way they do things, but they're not dumb. Um, a bit evil, but yeah, they're 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 pretty intelligent. So we go back to Sintra and Schillard Fitzosterlin's trying to talk to them, and they're kind of just like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're sick of this. We want to go home. Like, let's get everything figured out. Let's move on. And um, Meve points out, well, we actually still need to settle the status of Sintra, the succession of the throne, and Calanthe's heir. And they're like, okay, yeah, let's get into that. Uh, but Fitzosterlin uh, chimes in and says that he's certain that the matter of succession to the throne of Sintra will go like clockwork, that it's actually going to be a pretty easy discussion. Well, before that's explained, we return to the lodge upstairs, one floor above, and they're talking about their ideas for what they can do with Sintra because it's really going to come down to them and what they want anyway. Um, so they're coming up with these ideas like turning Sintra into a trust territory or turning it into a jointly governed principality. But then Asire, the Nilfgaardian sorceress, she comes in and says, well, the matter of Sintra has actually already been solved and taken care of. And they're like, wait, what? What do you mean? No, 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 that's not possible. But Triss, she gets it pretty quickly. Her relationship with Siri and uh, how much she probably focuses on Siri allows her to come up or to figure out what's going on pretty quickly. And again, before that is totally um, established what's going on here, but I'm sure you can already guess, we cut to another scene that leads into these answers. So we now are uh, visiting Vatir de Rideau and Emperor Amir and Nilfgaard. So uh, Dorito is, he's re feeling really sad and downhearted because his Cantarella, his mistress, uh, she dumped him. And um, now that the war is over, of course, she's, you know, she didn't have any feelings for him. She was a spy. Uh, so she uh, left now that she doesn't need, she's not obligated to be sleeping with him and getting information from him anymore. So he's feeling really sad, but he's trying his best to maintain decorum and do his duty and make the emperor happy. Um, so they're talking and uh, Amir brings up Berengar Luvarden and talks about how we're indebted to him for his help in uncovering the conspiracy. So um, that is a big part of how like they were able to figure out what was going on with Skellen. They knew Skellen was a traitor. He was missing for so long that it, he obviously wasn't working with Nilfgaard anymore, but Luvarden did help them uh, figure out exactly what Skellen's plans were and the other guys that were in on it too, like Duet, Dahi, or somebody else. Uh, and then they bring up Dijkstra. They say, oh, well, what about Dijkstra um, and that mysterious informer of his? 
And they said that they should repay him for the information that they got from Dijkstra, but I don't know how to pay, to pay him, to repay him for that. He doesn't want anything. And then Dorito's like, well, he actually, he'll take information. And Amir says, okay, good idea. We'll do that. And this is where it gets kind of complicated. Uh, so we know from this chapter and from previous information given to us in other chapters, um, Dijkstra was given a letter from Geralt. Geralt gave Dijkstra that letter after eavesdropping on the conversation between Luvardin, Skellen, Dahi, DeWitt. Um, in that meeting, Geralt learned that uh, Vizimir, King Vizimir of Redania was assassinated by a half-elf who was under magical protection. He learned where Vilgefortz's hideout was. Um... You know who else learned about that stuff? One of the members in the meeting, Berengar Luvardin, who was working with Nilfgaard. Um, so I, when they say Dijkstra's mysterious informer, they're referring to Geralt. They're referring, they got information from Dijkstra that Dijkstra got from Geralt in that letter. What exactly Geralt told him, I don't know. So there's information being passed around. And then later in this chapter, and we'll get to that, Dijkstra finds out that the Lodge exists. He knows about Vizimir's assassination. He knows, this is me revealing it for the first time now, that Philippa was the one that had Vizimir assassinated. Uh, he, and he reveals that to her. So there's a lot of information being passed around. A lot of people are learning things. We know who's all involved. Emperor Amir, maybe Louvarden, um, Geralt, Dijkstra. I just don't know exactly who's telling who what, but I guess it doesn't really matter. The, the most important thing here is that Dijkstra learns these things. Um, but it's just, I don't know. I tried really hard to figure out exactly what was going on and I struggled and I couldn't get to the bottom of the finer details, but that's okay. That's okay because uh, it doesn't say, it does not say. <laughs> uh, and if it doesn't say, then we can only really use our imagination or wait for answers in later chapters. But you know what? There's only two more chapters in this book after this one. So I don't, I'm not holding my breath for answers on things that specific. I think that it's okay. We can just move on. And I'm um, saying that I can just move on. Um, on a topic that I've already probably wasted way too much time on. Anyway, let's do it. We're moving on. It's happening now. Um, so, uh, Amir, yeah, Amir and Vatir Dorito are talking and then, um, the fake, the bogus Siri enters the room with Stella Congreve, the woman that's been teaching her etiquette and courtly form. And, um, Dorito sees bogus Siri and he's like, oh, please kill this girl. Please do it. Uh, he's, he's not that abrasive about it. He just says, um, yeah, reasons of state. Can you, and Amir's like, please just stop. Please just stop already. Like I told you, I would think about it and then make a decision. I'll get back to you. My people will call your people. Just let, let's go for now. Um, and then, um, Vatir brings up, um, the matter of Stefan Skellen and then, uh, Amir just says, um, nope, no mercy for him. Death to the traitor. Although that's not really news. We've known since the last book that Skellen was going to be executed. So, um, anyway, v Vatir leaves 
and Amir goes on a walk with bogus Siri. And then they go outside, they're walking around and they come across this uh, marble statue in a pond. And Amir asks Bogus Siri, um, oh, do you know what that figure depicts? And she says, it's a pelican. And this pelican pecks open its own breast so it can feed its young on its blood. It's an allegory of noble sacrifice and great love. And Amir responds by, he tells her the funniest funniest story I've ever heard in my life. He tells her that his father was this great ruler, but he never had a head for legends or myths, and he always mixed them up. And when he would come to this little park with his father, his father would tell him that that sculpture sculpture showed a pelican rising from the ashes. Yeah, it's not actually funny. Um, He makes the little joke and she doesn't laugh at it because it's not funny. And he says, you should at least smile. So he, Amir's one of those, one of those people. You don't laugh at his jokes and he, he he demands that you laugh. Um, It's an abuse of power. Um, And I'm kidding myself here, by the way. I'm not actually being that pedantic about something that small. Uh, But yeah, he's, he's being a little silly with her. He's showing this human side. We saw, really saw a human side come out of him at the end of the last chapter. So we're still seeing a continuation of that here, of him being a human being, a person. He's showing humanity. Uh, This is a side of Amir that is just, he's just so cold, but not as much in uh, this chapter. Um, So there's one point where he says, you know, I was, I was making fun of you. Like he, He's, um, he jokingly tells her that he, he's gonna, um, he, he's gonna punish or put Stella Congreve in disfavor for not training her properly. And, and she's like, oh no, please don't do that. It's not her fault. And he's like, no, 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 I'm, we're cool. I'm, I was just making fun of you. And she says, I noticed, which is not really an acceptable thing for her to say to him. And he says, I prefer you like that. Believe me, bold, just like, and he's cut off. He cuts himself off because he was going to say, and he stops himself before he, before he does, he goes like my daughter. So he's thinking of Siri here, real Siri. And he says, or he thinks about how, um, a sense of guilt is tormenting him really bad after thinking that. And he's starting to feel um, similar feelings to what he felt when he decided to let Siri go. And he's looking at this bogus Siri and he says, no, I'm not going to let Vatier murder this child. Like, I'm, we're just not going to do it. Um, and he tells her, like, you know, being an empress is not an easy job. And I don't know if I'll be able to love you. And he sees that a tear on her cheek after he says that. And then it, it says that just like in Stiga Castle, he felt the tiny shard of cold glass lodged in his heart shift. So yeah, he's, um, yeah, he is a real person after all. So, um, yeah, he hugs her, he hugs her tightly and he says, my, my, my poor little one, my, my poor raison d'etat, um, his reason of state. Um, but yeah, he's definitely going to go down with his marriage. Um, in the next scene, moving on to the next scene, we're back in Sintra again. 
and they are hanging this painting of the false theory and everyone there is expressing their thoughts on this girl and they start expressing their thoughts on um amir's decision to marry this girl um we've got Meave thinking about how she looks nothing like Calanthe or Rogner or Pavetta. Um, and she thinks, wait a second, there has been rumors, but no, 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 no. Those rumors, those rumors can't be real. This has to be the right ruler of Sintra. She's gotta be. It's it's demanded by Raison de Ta. And then Esterad Tyson, he just showed up recently. And he's thinking, she's not the one I saw in my dreams because he was having dreams. Shayla de Tangerville was putting these dreams in his head because the Lodge wants Siri to marry their son, Esterad Tyson's son, um, Tancred. Um, so he's been having these dreams of Siri, and he's like, no, that's definitely not who I saw in my dreams. And But I'm not going to tell anyone. I'll just tell my wife. I'll tell my Zulika. And we're going to have to figure out together how we can use the knowledge that those dreams gave us. So it sounds like Esther Tyson might be up to something. Don't know what yet, though. Um, and then the uh, Kistrin of Verdon, he's looking at the painting and he's thinking, um, wow, it's a really good thing that she ran away from me and we didn't get married because I probably would have ended up just like Galantha. I'd be dead. Um, and then we move on to Shillard Fitzosterlin, who's looking at the painting and he's just so confused. Um, doesn't make any sense to him because it's probably not um, the, in the best interest of Nilfgaard for Emir to marry this girl. He's doing it for probably just for personal reasons at this point because he doesn't want to kill her. And then maybe there's other little things that go along with that. But um, Shillard Fitzosterlin is thinking how, you know, he why would he take this woman as his wife? Like just to get this miserable country. Like I could have gained half of it in negotiations. He didn't even have to go through with this. I don't understand anything of this raison d'etat. Um, and I suspect that they aren't telling me everything. And yeah, he's right about that, of course. Um, and Tris, she sees this portrait going on the wall and she's thinking how, well, this is good. This is a good thing. Siri, the real Siri will be safe now. They'll forget about her. They'll let her live. Um, and I don't know if she's talking about the rulers or the lodge or both, but I don't think we can be so sure about the lodge if that is indeed who she's talking about. When we return to uh, uh, Boris, Dijkstra, Fortiarna, um, in their wilderness fire uh, camp, and they bring up this parade that is supposed to be a celebration of these peace negotiations being concluded, this parade in the free city of Novigrad. And um, Dijkstra talks about it a little bit and it sounds like, wait a second, wait, were you actually there? And then he's like, eh, in truth, I was a little late. This is another indicator that it's Dijkstra um, because at this point it hasn't been outright said yet. Well, although it's never outright said, as I've mentioned, but but um, him saying he was late is um, a hint that it's Dijkstra because um, a little bit later, Dijkstra shows up late <laughs> to the parade. We go to the parade and we see that. But um, right now we'll visit the parade. Um, we're not gonna see Dijkstra there yet. We'll come, we'll come up on that soon. Uh, but the free company is marching through the parade and people are cheering them and saying, long live the free company. And Lorenzo Mola's there and Julia, pretty kitty, Abbott and Marco and Adam, Adu, Pangrat, 
and it's this big celebration. Um, it's supposed to be this great thing, but it says multiple times that the bells of Novigrad sounded plaintive, they sounded sad, they sounded mournful. And I think it's supposed to be symbolic of, even though this is a celebration, it's a celebration of this new order, but the new order is actually not a good thing. It's actually gonna be pretty shitty for a lot of people. Uh, but yeah, so they're marching through the parade and they come up on the review stands and the monarchs are in these stands and the free company is basically presented in front of them and she notes how she sees Foltest up there and Demaven, Hensel, uh, Meave, um, and then she sees Queen Hedwig who was uh, Visimir's wife and she thinks, oh, that kid beside her is, it's gotta be Prince Radovich, uh, the son of the murdered king, oh, that poor boy. And then the next scene, we're still there, but it's being told through the perspective of this Prince Radovid, of Vizimir's son. And he's thinking about how no one's going to shout, long live Radovid. No one's going to shout anything for my father or, any, or not shout for his glory um, about the alliance uh, that he contributed to, which is why he was murdered. So he's feeling really embittered about the situation because nobody seems to really care about him. They don't really seem to care about his father that was murdered. Um, and then suddenly he feels the eyes of someone on the nape of his neck. And he turns around and he sees the dark bottomless eyes of Philippa Eilhart fixed on him. And he thinks, just you wait, just you wait. And then it says that no one could have predicted then that this 13-year-old boy would grow into a king after paying back all the insults borne by himself and his mother would pass into history as Radovid the Stern. So he's got it out for Philippa Eilhart, and uh, he will later go down in history as Radovid the Stern. So it doesn't bode well for her, uh, doesn't bode well for anybody that becomes his enemy. Uh, but we go back to the free company in the parade and they are, um, yeah, uh, pretty kitty and a do they're kind of talking and, um, well, they're not kind of talking. It's actually a pretty big moment for them. A do proposes, proposes marriage to pretty kitty. And she's like, well, wait a second. You're already married. And he's like, oh, I'll get a divorce. Um, and it's this moment where she feels disconcerted, but also very happy. And she doesn't really know why. And the bells of Novigrad moan plaintively. And then we go to a scene, a very short scene, worth mentioning though, uh, where the novice Yernid, uh, she returns to the temple school, the temple of Melitale, uh, where Mother Nenica is, and she gives Nenica an update on the status of the other novices. Um, Nenica looks at Yernid and she thinks she's returned a woman, she's confident and self-aware. But uh, your need tells her about how three of the novices died in the war. Uh, one of them fell in love with a Nilf guardian and ran off with him. And then she tells her about Ayala II, who we know from two chapters back at the Battle of Brenna. She tells her that she decided to um, stay and help Milo Vanderbeck, Rusty, the halfling doctor. Um, which we already knew that that was going to happen with Iola because we know that in a year her and Rusty are going to die from the Catriona plague. Um, and, but she says to Nenica, she says, forgive her, uh, forgive her mother Nenica. And Nenica says, forgive her. I'm proud of her. Just a nice little moment. So we go back to the parade again. <laughs> and uh, 
at least we're done with the Cintra stuff, like the room in Cintra. We're not going back to that anymore, but we're going back to the parade. And um, Dijkstra is now showing up late as uh, as promised. And he, he tells Philip, he says, I gotta talk to you. And she's like in private and he says, well, I'll agree to a f few additional pair of eyes. Let's say the beautiful ladies of Monte Calvo. So he's indicating that he knows about the lodge, so they're not so secret anymore. Uh, I mean, if anybody were to find out, it would be Dijkstra, but still, he knows. And she's just like, no, sh sh shut up, sh sh shut your mouth. And he um, is like, okay, whatever, that's fine. Like, when, when can we talk, though? And she's like, I don't know, I'll let you know, but leave me in peace. This is a great celebration. And he's like, a great celebration? And she says, we're on the threshold of a new era, Dijkstra. And then the bells of Novigrad tolled. They sounded strangely mournful. Keep saying that. Keeps on saying that. Uh, but then we go to this next scene. This scene is depicted um, on YouTube in this episode. So you can actually see what's going on here. Well, a piece of what's going on here in the video. Uh, so we return to Yara. I did say at the end of the Battle of Brenna episode that... Um, he, we were probably wrapping up his story in this chapter. That's not true because we do visit him again here. So re retraction, I'm retracting that. Uh, so Yara and his future wife, Lucienne, we know from that chapter that he marries a woman named Lucienne. So this is like their relationship kind of kicking off right here. But she's uh, driving this wagon, this horse-drawn wagon that's got Yara on it. It's got these other um, crippled amputee soldiers uh, I guess they're taking them home. It doesn't actually even say exactly where they're going, but it sounds like they're going home. Well, the war's over, so where else would they go? And um, Yara's feeling very insecure about his stump. Um, he thinks that the world doesn't have anything better to do than to stare at it, uh, which probably isn't true, but I, I can only imagine how he must be feeling. It's a pretty traumatic thing to have to go through. So poor Yara. Uh, but this Lucienne, she's different. She neither pretended she couldn't see his stump nor adopted an effective style of humiliating help or humiliating pity. Um, so that's pretty cool. And it makes sense that they fall in love with each other since she sounds like a pretty good person. Um, so yeah, they're on this wagon. It's rolling along. And um, there's this moment where it comes on a bump and then she's got to hang on to him in order not to fall off. And he's, you know, just relishes in this and her smell and her warmth. And it's really cute. Um, and she sees the medallion uh, that he was given from the merchant that uh, they had. They put Siri's name on. That's uh, a forget-me-not amulet. And she's like, oh, I know what this is. Like, let me take a look. And she's able to get it from him and look inside because he's only got one hand. And uh, she reads that the name says Cirilla. And she says, oh, she won't forget you. If she really loved you, she's waiting. Um, and that's because if you love a guy, you love all of him and not just bits. And he's like, well, I mean, that's an oversimplification because um, a man's ability to support his family depends on whether he's in one piece. And she's like, no, that's that's not true because you're a brain box. You toil with your noggin, mate. You are a scribe and a, a training at a preschool. Like you don't. You're that 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 missing hand. It's a trifle. It's just a trifle. Like don't even worry about it. And the wagon's being pulled along, and some of the 
soldiers, the wounded amputees, the cripples, they're saying a couple of things that are a little inappropriate. We'll move past it to get to the important part here. And that's that they see um, some Squiatel elves come out of nowhere and then they... Um, they're just they're all they all get really scared about the squidtail. Yara thinks and they said that there weren't any more squirrels, that they had all been killed, that the elven question had been solved, but um they can see that that's not totally true. But the thing is with these elves, uh they're broken. Uh it's noted that nothing remained of their pride, their clothes were all tattered and stained and dirty and their hair was disheveled and matted with sticky filth and clotted blood they were just part of a commando that was attacked and they probably also just served in the war they probably just served for um Nilfgaard and there was just um they were left with nothing they um were just sent back on their way probably given no money and um yeah they were just used and discarded um and then they go to actually pass the wagon without looking but not all of them one of them turns out to be teruvial i'm not going to reintroduce her again i think i've done it enough times at this point because <laughs> she has brought up a lot um teruvial stops by the wagon and um, Lucienne notices what's going on here. She can tell she because Lucienne's a peasant girl. She grew up in a small little poor village, so she recognizes uh, famine. She recognizes a starving person, and she holds out bread towards Teruvial, and she takes it. And there's an elf that's with them who's like, "No, Teruvial, stop it! Don't do that." Well, he's he's speaking in the elder speech. We don't know exactly what he's saying, but you can tell. Um, context you can tell that he's basically like don't don't do that and then all of the other um, invalids on the wagon all of a sudden hold out food to the other elves and um, it says that for the first time in a thousand years elves were holding their hands out towards humans and they start crying and they're choking on their sobs and this is a big deal because there was this um, false rumor that elves didn't even have the proper glands to allow them to cry but because they're just such a proud people they don't show those kind of emotions um, so yeah, it's just this really profound moment where, you know, the, 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 the beliefs about humans that they've had, um, are obviously a bit misguided. Um, not all humans are, um, bigoted against elves. Um, and it's, they kind of have this bonding moment with what they thought were their enemies. And they received this compassion from them after suffering and basically accepting defeat and getting used and then abandoned by Nilfgaard. So it was really emotional. Um, but then the elves, they go into the woods. And then later that evening, evening um, an armored uh, group of horsemen come up. And they're commanded by this woman who had completely white, close-cropped hair. Uh, she had scars all over her face. Uh, she was missing a big chunk of her ear. Um, she was missing her hand. She had a hook for a hand. And she was asking about the elves, about these survivors of this commando unit that were destroyed two days back. And everybody's just like, hmm, what? Elves? Nope, never never seen an elf. I don't, don't know what you're talking about. And then she thinks, that, oh, they're all lying. Um, you're lying out of pity. But I, White Rayla, have no pity. 
So this is black Rayla turned white Rayla. Uh, she, we met her a couple of times. Uh, the most important time was when she was trying to, with a few other um, mercenaries, trying to help the fleeing uh, Adernian fugitives, or not fugitives, refugees, whatever you want to call them, um, escape the Nilfgaardians in Edern and get out before they were captured and taken on as slaves. So she was part of that, and then her little group were accosted by elves. All of them got killed. It looked like she was about to get killed, but the chapter cut away before we could see what happened to her. But she was known as Black Rayla. She had this thick black braid, and now uh, we see she survived that. She survived the Scoia'tael that came up on her, and she came out of that with... Um, missing hand with scars on her face. Her hair is now white and short. Um, and she now really, really hates elves. Well, maybe she did beforehand, but, but if, if anything, she probably hates them a lot more now, but you can see that, um, she's not a fan of the elves. Definitely not a fan of Scoia'tael. So yeah, white Rayla has definitely been through some shit. It seemed like she put it would have died, but yeah, it cut away. This is in time of contempt. So this is a while ago that we had this scene take place. Anyway, moving on. Let's go back to the Novigrad parade. So the dwarves, the volunteer regiment from Mahakam is marching through the parade. And there is this moment where they reach the review stands and um, a lot of them give the middle finger up to the uh, monarchs in the stands. And a lot of them are really offended by this. Um, the priest Willimer, we've met him before, he was from Tamaria, and uh, he, th he thinks that this is a horrible thing, these vile people, and Hierarch Hemelfar is um, thinking this is an insult, it's a scandal, and Foltest is just like, okay, pretend you can't see it. Meave is thinking, we shouldn't have economized on their pay, we shouldn't have refused them rations, we ought not to have insulted them by our miserliness, and I mean, she's right. So what we see is that the dwarves, just like um, what Nilfgaard did with the elves, are not the same exact thing, but similarly were not treated for their service very well. They were not rewarded for it. Um, and it just comes down to them being non-humans, um, which is, Absolutely terrible. Um, next scene is the execution order of Stefan Skellen or the sentencing of Stefan Skellen. Don't really need to go into that. It's just basically said that Stefan Skellen, uh, you're a traitor. Um, you're sentenced to death. Um, and I'm uttering your name for the last time. May it henceforth be forgotten. So nothing new there. Uh, the next scene uh, seems a little bit out of place, but there's um, some relevance here. But we go to the University of Oxenfurt, and there's this guy, this physicist pr professor, his name's Professor um, Oppenhauser, and he's really excited. He's trying to gather up all the other professors, telling them that his perpetual motion machine is finally finished. She's been working on it for 30 years, and it's finally done, and... Um, uh, well, while he's showing everyone a seismic wave, which is one of the series of earthquakes that was caused by the destruction of Stiga Castle, um, by the sorceresses, by the lodge. We know that the lodge had Stiga Castle destroyed. Um, the, this wave came all the way to Oxenfurt and it, um, yeah, it broke his perpetual motion device. 
It said that it turned over once more and it stopped forever and it was never possible to start again. And the interesting thing about this is that um, Oppenhauser, Oppenheimer, very similar names. They're both physicists. Um, Oppenheimer is credited for the creation of the atomic bomb, something that would create um, seismic waves, I guess. I'm, I'm not too familiar with the science, um, scientific terms, but um, I think that those are the parallels there. So that's the interesting part of this scene, at least in my opinion. Um, we go back to Novigrad again, back to this parade. We see um, Hemelfart is a huge bigot. Um, he's looking at all of the soldiers in the parade and he's thinking like, this is messed up. Like all these people, like who won this war after all them or us? Jeez. Um, <laughs> and he says, well, when the historians start to write about this war, uh, I've got to make sure that this is censored. All the mercenaries, the, the witchers, Cohen, uh, hired brigands, all the non-humans, any other suspicious elements, they're not going to be included in the history. Like, nope, get them out of there. Not a word. Not a single word, and also not a word about Dijkstra. He really does not like Dijkstra. A lot of people don't. Uh, he doesn't want Dijkstra included in uh, the history that they write about um, the um, war that the North won against Nilfgaard. Um, while he's thinking these things, though, like the last thought he had has is of Dijkstra. Philippa thinks, um, yeah, no, that, that's not true. Over my dead body, um, Dijkstra will remain as long as I need him, which apparently isn't that much longer. Um, but then we cut over to Priest Willimer, and he's looking at Philippa, and he's thinking, oh, one day you're going to make a mistake. I'm going to exploit that mistake, turn everybody against you. Um, I'm going to make sure that even if you don't make a mistake, you're going to be blamed for something, uh, perhaps a plague. Maybe a plague will start soon, um, and I'm going to make sure that you're blamed for not being able to remove the effects of the plague, and then the fires will be lit under stakes. So this priest Willimer really hates Philippa and uh, wants to use an opportunity to blame her for something. And then we cut to um, an example of the uh, Catriona. We see um, where a little bit of where it's um, getting started, where it's kicking off. Uh, so there's this poor kitty named Ginger, uh, this cat. Recently killed a rat that was infected by one of the fleas that were infected that Siri brought over. Um, so the cat killed the rat and now Ginger, this cat is dying horribly. And then, um, this woman sweeps the cat off the porch and this cat dies wishing that those ungrateful people, the people who he hunted mice for, for all these years would also fall ill. And his wishes are about to come true because the woman that swept him off the porch, um, scratched her calf below the knee because a flea had bitten her. So she's going to get catch Riona, probably pass it to a lot of people. Um, yeah, it's going to be a bad thing. Anyway, moving on. Uh, we go to the scene where there's basically these elven executions. So the uh, members that were part of the um, the, the war criminals, the Ryehead Brigade officers, they're being brought to this place on a boat. They get there and then they're forced off of the boat. 
and they're not feeling too good about this. They don't have any assurances in the trials or the amnesties that they're supposed to go through. And then they're um, pushed into this uh, line of armed mercenaries, and there's also civilians. And Foyle looks at the civilians, and he thinks selectors. So they pull out three of the elves, including Foyle and they take them to this place, um, like these sheds that are really close to this harbor. And two of the elves, not Foyle Tiarna, two of them though, they put these nooses around their necks and they strangle them for a little bit and they start stabbing them. They don't do anything to Foyle Tiarna just yet. They apparently have something really special planned for him. Uh, but we don't get to find out what that is. He doesn't either. Um, lucky for him because he's actually been fiddling with his handcuffs for the past couple of days and he manages to get them off and he um, smashes a couple of them in the face. Um, one of the civilians who is present, he um, hits the civilian with the handcuffs. Um, the civilians are basically, they paid to um, murder the elves that murdered their family. So that's what's going on with these civilians that are there. Uh, so he's able to run off. He jumps into the water and the heavy chain is dragging him down because he, he, he didn't get them off completely. I guess one's still on one of his wrists, um, but the, but it's uh, dragging him down to the bottom and he fought with all of his strength for his life. And it said uh, his life, which not so long before he hadn't thought he cared about. Um, but yeah, I guess when you're faced with death, uh, things start to the way you think about certain things probably change a bit. Um, back to the parade again. Uh, Dijkstra starts to talk to Philippa again, and she's like, all right, what do you want to talk about? And he says, about the assassination of King Vizimir, he just comes right out and says it. And he says, the half-elf who did that was not acting alone. And he's and she says, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? And... What, like, do you have any proof? Like, what kind? Where did you get it? Like, what, what what's going on here? And he says, you'd be surprised if I told you where I got the proof from. And he asks when he can expect an audience. And she says, soon. And I don't think he got that audience. Because the next scene, uh, Dijkstra is visiting his secretary, Ori Bruven. He's this old guy. He coughs a lot. Um, he's visiting, some, visiting him so that he can say goodbye. He's going to take off. He says, I said one word to one person just one person and that was one word too many and he knows that there are assassins coming for him and we knew that this was going to happen um we didn't know what was leading up to it but we did know that people or assassins were going to be sent after Dijkstra um and he says um yeah they're coming they're coming on soft little rats paws and um and they do but he escapes he's he's able to get out before they get to him um, they come into the office and Ori Rubin's there and he says, oh, he's not here. Like you can leave. You're not going to find him. And they don't kill Ori Rubin, but Ori Rubin gets locked up in a prison for six years and, um, he's interrogated and tortured in this prison, which is really shitty for poor Ori Rubin. And, um, 
It says that after he was released, he he didn't live very long after that. He lost his teeth to scurvy, his hair to anemia, his eyes to glaucoma, his breath to asthma. All of his fingers were broken when he was tortured in prison. And yeah, less than a year later, he died in the Temple Horror House. And then it specifically says this. It says, in misery, forgotten. Really depressing. Uh, you feel bad for this guy, although he might not be a very good person. Um, Dijkstra's not a good person. Dijkstra's definitely committed some atrocities, and Ori Reuven was working directly under him. So we can only believe that Ori Reuven is guilty through association or knew he was working through or working for a bad guy and probably attributing to some of the bad stuff that Dijkstra's done. But... Um, yeah, Dijkstra gets away with it because we are returning for the last time to the scene with Boris, Dijkstra, and Foil Tiarna. And, um, yeah, we see that Dijkstra is able to escape for sure. Um, but anyway, it's dawn now. The um, sun's coming up. And it's just kind of decided that they're going to travel together. That these three men who they they all just met, they're all going to travel um, on to wherever it is that they're going. Maybe Zeracania. And um, Boris says to them, "Let's abandon mistrust." I'm Boris Mun. So he tells them his name, and Dijkstra introduces himself as Siggy Reuven. So he shortens his first name, which is Sigismund, uh, shortens it to Siggy, and then takes on the name of Ori Reuven. Um, Drop the Ori, leave the Reuven. He's Siggy Reuven now. Um, I don't think that that is uh, really that big of a disguise. I don't know that anybody that knew him is going to be where he's going. He's probably going far away enough that it won't matter. But either way, it doesn't seem that safe. But I think that it's the author probably made his name that so that it, just in case you didn't pick up on the other hints, this is going to be your final and most obvious hint that this is Dijkstra. Um, taking on a new name but yeah uh, for the sake of disguising yourself I think he should have come up with something a little bit better I think um, people could connect the dots there and then Fuentiarna uh, introduces himself as Wolf Eisengrim so he moves his first name to his last name uh, he's called the Iron Wolf same thing but he might not be as vehemently pursued as Dijkstra has been so um, maybe he's safe with that alias, but either way, I don't think that the point is uh, to labor over something this intensively as I have been. <laughs> the point is just so that you know who these people are. But either way, Boris, Dijkstra, Flotiarna, they are going to venture on together as friends. And Boris says, God strike me down if this isn't the start of a beautiful friendship. And that is how the chapter ends. We've got two more chapters of this book, folks. It's um, it's a bit sad. Yeah, so this has been probably the longest episode of this podcast series I've ever recorded. I, I liked the way I went through it, like reading um, the notes from the book instead of the notes that I would normally write out. Uh, but I definitely talked a lot longer than I normally would, which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Um, I don't know. Podcasts are typically long, so I, I suppose it's acceptable. But if you have enjoyed my podcast for its brevity, then I don't know that you're going <laughs> to be that happy with this episode. Well, I'll probably go back to my notes next week because um, I should have more time. All right. 
Well, anyway, just to let you know in case you didn't, these episodes are available on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for joining, and I'll catch you all in the next episode.